Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the wonderful world of wine. We are on Franklin Radio, 102.9 FM, WFPR, and you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. How are you, Kim? I'm well, Mark. How are you? Everything is great. I th- I'm excited to talk today to you and our listeners about the S word, Kim. <laughs> we <we've> mentioned this. <laughs> I know you get kind of uh, discouraged when we talk about this, but I think it's something... Our listeners, and I see it on the retail side, I know you get it all the time in education classes. People want to know about sulfur and wine and always have concerns about sulfur and wine. And when we do label classes, we talk about it. When we do health-based class, we talk about it. So first, I think we have to mention the sulfur statement on a bottle of wine. It's been around since I think it officially was required in 1987, and is one of the only, is the only real ingredient that a winemaker has to tell you is in the bottle. It is one of the truths on a label. And I thought we should spend some time and just give some information and some updates based on this article that was from the Napa Valley Wine Academy. And they did some comparisons, sulfur, sulfides, and what it's all about. So how would you like to start, Kim, to refresh our listeners on this? You know, I'm actually surprised that you like this article as much as you do because it's very science-y. <laughs> so yeah, like, you don't, I don't there's know. a lot in this article about the science of what are we talking about when we say sulfur or sulfur dioxide or sulfites or sulfates, which people get those two things confused. It's a bit of chemistry in this article, which, by the way, was was uh, written by uh, Master of Wine, Isabel Legeron. And like Mark said, it came uh, from the Napa Valley Wine Academy. But part of me wants to, on the one hand, say, yeah, this has a lot of information about what people should be thinking about when it comes to sulfur and sulfites in their wines. But on the other hand, the author is like a real diehard proponent of natural wine of you know more natural or sulfite free ways of making wine so i feel like we need to be a little careful if we're saying that this is kind of the be all and end all about sulfur in wines and if we're going to be exploring an article that is written by someone who has taken a stance to say that yes these things are allowed in wines but this is why I think they're dangerous. I think we need to just be a little bit cautious about that. I understand that. And I, I, let's just first give a little background what you know the sulfur sulfites mean in the wine and what you're seeing on the label, what that means and where they're used and that stuff. Just maybe a refresher for some people, but I think it's a, a very common question we get all the time. If it says on a bottle of wine that it contains sulfites. That is also not only a U.S. standard. Since 2005, it's been an EU standard. So you see it on on imported wines as well. Anything above 10 parts per million, it must say contains sulfites. So now you're thinking, and I know in a past show, Kim, you we were talking about this parts per million. What is 
a pot per million. So 1,000 pots per million is 1,000 milliliters, which equals one gram. So you're talking very small amount, 10 milligrams per liter is, is 10 pots per, per million. So very, very, very small amounts. And we had a chat one time, Kim, what was it, uh, the amount of sulfites in like frozen French fries, like 900 Oh yeah, like pots per million. 10 times the, the amount that you usually will find in red wine. So canned soups, uh, yep. dried A lot fruits. of processed foods, dried fruits, like you said, frozen vegetables. There are a lot of other food products out there that don't have to put it on their label, but wine does, even though wine might have a tenth of what is in that other product. For whatever reason, it's required by the government that you have to put it on wine, but not that you have to put it on other foods. And she has a part in this article where she says, well, it's because of the alcohol. And we don't know how, when sulfites react with alcohol, how the body then processes that. And I've been in wine for how many years? 19 years, 20 years. This is the first I have ever seen anyone say, well, the problem with sulfites is that when it comes into contact with alcohol, that's why your body can't process it. Maybe that's why you get a headache, which is why right, I'm like right. a, a little bit frustrated with this article because part of my brain is, is saying like, I don't know if this is true. And yes, she's a master of wine and I don't want to say anything bad about a master of wine, but I feel like I've done so much reading about wine the in opposite. my years in the industry. I have never seen anyone say you get a, a headache from sulfites in wine because of the combination of alcohol and sulfites. Never, ever, ever have I seen that. Yeah, good point. And, and we've always said in the past too about allergic reactions. It's like 0.1% of the population has an allergic reaction to the sulfites as well. So yeah, I mean, she did have a, you're right. That point was And was the strange. only, like the only source that she cites for that is her own book. Right. So right. I'm just like, right. from someone who is in the academic sphere that sent off just like little exclamation points in my brain, like, right. oh, goodness. Well, we took, let's talk just a little more background about the sulfites, Kim. We talked about it's on the label, the pots per million. Let's talk or tell our listeners where it's used, when it's used, because that leads up to her whole point about why maybe it shouldn't be used as much. Right. And I think a confusing part of this article is that, well, on the one hand, she's talking not just about sulfites, but all those other things that sound like sulfites. Right. So Which any is really of these geeky and yes, like but I think that that's also confusing for consumers because say you are, say you buy a package of bacon and trust me, this is going somewhere. Okay. On the package of bacon, it says contains no sulfites slash sulfates. Most people don't know that there's a difference between sulfates and sulfites. And what is found in wine is sulfites. And she goes into a whole big thing about what are sulfates, what are sulfides, which I think on the surface is really something that is important. And it's something that it's necessary for consumers to know that there are differences. And she has a point where she says, sulfates are sulfur-based compounds that are salts of sulfuric acid. They are found in the cosmetic industry and in cleaning products. And then she goes on and say, some of these compounds are used in wine growing and winemaking, but this is not what is in your wine. So 
I feel like these parts are a little bit scary for people because she's talking about all of these things that really are not found in wine. Same with sulfides. You know, these are naturally occurring compounds that wine is a complex product. And during the magic of fermentation, lots of different chemical changes go about. So yes, there there is this give and take between different components of wine and the winemaking process during fermentation that happens on a molecular level. But that doesn't necessarily mean that any of these things are bad or are dangerous or even are unnatural. So can you see that I got really frustrated with this article? Yeah, no, but (laughs) let's bring it back. Just bring it right back to wine where sulfites, you, you mentioned it, Kim, it's naturally occurs when a fermentation process happens. They also use them in the vineyards on the grapes Mm -hmm. to to help protect the grapes. When they pick the grapes, they might use sulfite on the grapes to preserve them until they bring it into the the, uh, winery to, to make the wine. They also use it to clean the barrels. So it's used a lot. It's a very common thing. Her take was, okay, you can do that, but maybe when you're making it, don't add any more. In the wine world, when you see a wine that's certified organic, it won't have contained sulfites because it'll have less than 10 parts and it'll say no NSA, no sulfites are added, but they are still in there. They're just under that 10 parts per million. And there is some sort of weird law that TTB has that if you want to say that your wine is less than 10, you just have to submit a lab report. It doesn't have to be organic. If it still measures under 10, it has to be certified and you send CTB and you can, you can leave that contained sulfites off, but I've never, ever see, seen it. Mm-hmm. And then if you do that process, you still cannot say on the label that it doesn't contain or it's low in sulfur because they feel like it's misleading, but, which doesn't make sense to me, but that's my wine label geekiness thing coming up. <laughs> so- then you talk about what you're saying, natural. You just make the wine. If there's sulfur on there, it's just going to be there, but it's probably going to be under 10 and go with that. She feels that's a better solution in the wine world. But it's really, really rare nowadays that that's happening. Don't you think, Kim? I mean, even the natural wines, I've never seen. Have you ever seen a natural wine that says doesn't contain sulfites? Yeah. I think there are a lot. That's certified organic? Yeah. Or just, Yeah. Yeah. That, but it's certified organic, not the other, not that's not certified. I haven't had a lot of, honestly, I haven't had a lot of natural wines or seen a lot of bottles of natural wines. And what's interesting about this is that, you know, she puts in parentheses that the things that sulfites are protecting wine against to be so-called false, like these things that for a regular wine consumer are going to be yeah, really off-putting. Yeah. Like, you know, smells of you know, milk that's gone sour and nail polish remover and Britannomyces, which in small quantities can be okay, but in larger quantities really smells like dirty animals. Right. And, and I just, I keep coming back to, she's got a very specific point of view that she wants to get across. And yes, my own opinions are coloring my emotional response (laughs) to this article, but I think that she's doing the exact same thing. I think that she has so much of an opinion that sulfites and any of these added sulfur compounds are bad 
And there are so many, I feel like red flags in this article. Like she goes off on a couple of places saying, and these are byproducts of the petrochemical industry, which for anyone who is trying to either live a healthier lifestyle or, you know, trying to what whatever that's a dog whistle i mean honestly for people who are afraid of these things so i feel like so much of this article is fear-mongering and i don't know how much of this is actually based in science um and i hope to god she never hears this <laughs> this uh, uh, podcast opinion hey. but i just i feel like i well, don't know was it what about kim there was a part where the solution say don't use sulfites because you can also use other additives that do the same thing to preserve the wine. And the point about that was if you use those other additives, you don't have to put those on the label because it's not sulfur and sulfur is the only thing you have to tell us is in there. But there were other additives you could use. Plus there were other treatments you could do the wine like flash uh, pasteurize or UV lights But who's to say that those other additives are better for you or worse for you than sulfites? Exactly. So flash pasteurization. I mean, anytime you introduce heat to winemaking, you are going to degrade the wine in some manner. But she was in favor of looking at alternatives to it, right? Yes. But this process, it's been for thousands of years sulfites have been in but wine. even that she was like oh no they've only been used for the last like 80 years how is that that doesn't make sense i know it's a naturally occurring thing it's always been anytime you oh ferment. but she's saying added sulfites that, oh, ap- oh, the that extra, after the, the 19 like they were net that they weren't used before the 20th century she says it like right at the beginning well maybe because the quality is better people <sighs> don't want horrible wine on the shelves spoiling and right exactly <laughs> yeah which is part of my problem with you know, the, the, this idea that some of these faults should just be taken as this is what wine is supposed to taste like, which yes. I think if we're on the side of wine is a beverage that should be enjoyed by the masses, even people who don't spend most of their time thinking about wine and consuming wine. I mean, if you're somebody who has a glass of wine once a week or even once a month, do you want, you're not going to understand that that really funky stuff that you have in your glass is considered like this is high art in a glass. It's like, well, to you, it doesn't taste good. So why should you be drinking it? So I don't know. What what about her point, Kim, where she mentioned if the farmers grew things better, there wouldn't be a need for sulfur in the winemaking process. Did that make sense to you? I mean, I suppose that's true, but how are you supposed to make a wine that is affordable to someone who doesn't make a lot of money if the winemaker has to do everything by hand and can't sell for their wines and has to do all of these things that is honestly eschewing modern technology in order to make wine? Like if everyone gave up making wine in a modern way now, the price of wine would go through the roof and most people would not be able to afford it. Yeah, this point lost me because farmers of growing that are growing grapes are probably selling off their grapes to a winemaker, and they have to really preserve them to ship them somewhere, move them somewhere. And it's kind of looking at the other way, it's kind of insulting the small farmer or the small winery saying you shouldn't use it, but they 
because they're smaller. You know what I mean? They're not maybe shipping it or, or the process of moving it is not as far. So I thought it was kind of hacking the small guy for using it too. But I think we also have to take into account that the way that our modern food system is structured, and I include wine as part of food systems, if everyone went to organic farming, there would not be enough food to feed everybody on the planet. And that's part of the problem and part of the issues that a lot of people who work in food systems have with organic farming is that, you know, we need to find ways to provide food to feed everybody on the planet. And what organic farming, you know, on the one hand, may be a healthier way for the planet and a healthier way to go forward for growing food and for preserving what we have. But on the other hand, if you get rid of all of these advances that science has made, then you are at risk of not being able to provide for all the humans who are actually here. So it's, it's a difficult situation. And this is an argument that we see going back and forth a lot of the time for organic farming versus non-organic farming versus conventional. It's a struggle. And it, you know, it needs to be said that these processes of doing this type of growing are a lot more expensive and makes it difficult for, I think, more people to be able to enjoy the fruits of the labor if those things are so astronomically expensive. So I just want to recap real quickly, Kim. If, if a wine says contains sulfites, it's above 10 pots per million in that bottle, but they don't have to tell you what it is. And I know in the mm -hmm. past you made a comment, you'd like to see that number uh, and number. listed. That and would a little bit less afraid too, because right. if you see that, and, and I, I don't want it just on wine. Like if, if they're going to single wine out to say contain sulfites, I really would like it on everything else too, because right. I don't really think it's fair that wine has to bear the brunt of, oh, it's got sulfites in it. It must be bad for me. And yet people are buying a tin of Campbell's soup that probably has, you know, 10 times the amount in your bottle of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And yet because it's not on that label, people don't know it's there. Yeah, so different it, governing bodies too. Yeah, so. but it's not it's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so, why does why does wine have to suffer through all of this whereas other other food products do not? So again, if it's says organic USDA certified, it's under 10, that 10 pots per right. million. If it says made with organic grapes, it can't be over 100 pots per million. And in the US, the maximum that can be in a bottle of wine is 350 pots per million. So it goes very high. EU, now if you're looking at wines coming in from the EU, they typically under 150. So, and I think a lot of American wines tend to be well, we don't Under know. that 150 mark too. But again, nobody knows because it's yeah. not on the label. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. For more information, you can find his website, franklinliquors.com. And for more information about myself, please go to vinitaswineworks.com. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. Uh, we're talking about a lot of sort of sciencey, geeky things today on uh, the wonderful world of wine. We just had a wonderful conversation about sulfites. And now we're going to talk about another topic, which are lees, which I think is a 
word that maybe, you know, people have heard bandied about when it comes to either a wine description or maybe they read something on the back of a bottle. But we want to explain exactly what lees are. One of the things I liked about this article was that they differentiated, Mark, between gross lees and fine lees. So could you explain to our listeners what we mean by that differentiation? I like this and I think I overuse this term lees when I'm trying to sell a bottle of wine. And I'll get into that as we, we go further in the discussion. But when grapes ferment, the sugar eats the yeast, or the yeast eats the sugar, I'm sorry, which the sugar is the grapes. And that ends up a byproduct that's dropped to the bottom, basically, of whatever the thing is fermenting and the wine is fermenting. In. And it's dead lead. Typically, it's dead yeast, grapes, skins, uh, seeds, stems, even some tartrates can be in there. They put two categories of these leaves. The gross leaves, which I think is a good description, is all that big stuff. And then that there's stuff. the, yeah, the that fine leaves, which is just dead yeast. And that fine leaves is actually better quality. Mm-hmm. And the winemakers can then take that and add it to the wine to give it certain characteristics, which I love, Kim. And I think you you know want to explain that to the listeners what keeping the lees in the wine does. Yeah. So once you get rid of those gross lees, which like Mark, like Mark just said, it's not just the residual bits of yeast that have done their job and now need to be filtered out, but it's all kind of that extra stuff that kind of comes along with making wine. But then once you have a fairly clear solution where the wine is still in the process of going from being grape juice into being wine, you get these really fine, it's almost like a a powderiness in the solution that can add some really nice flavor components to the wine. So the longer you let your wine sit on this stuff, which is just those residual yeast cells, you know, they've done their job and they are dead, but it's not like you've got a, you know, a dead creature in your wine. They're just the byproduct of of yeast. They float to the bottom, but they really impart this nice, um, you know, it's a creamy texture, but can also be a flavor. So like a flavor of freshly baking bread, you know, sort of that yeasty smell or that nuttiness that comes with nice brown crust on your your baking loaf of bread. So the longer that wines sit on that, the more they get this kind of creamy texture and more of this kind of bready, yeasty uh, flavor and aroma. So the wines that you commonly will find have this component to them are champagnes, sometimes California Chardonnays, in addition to having oak barrel treatment, will have been sitting on the lees for an extended amount of time. And Muscadet, from the uh, the Atlantic coast of France, right on the mouth of the Loire River, will often have 18 months, sometimes two years of time sitting on the lees, which gives it this wonderful flavor, wonderful aroma, makes it really, really good with seafood. So that it's mostly a, a white wine type of presentation, I guess you can say. But it's yeah. really, really lovely. And I think for people who like richer white wines, but still like the crisp texture and not a lot of oak, searching out a wine that has been aged on lees kinds of get, kind of gives you the best of both worlds. A lot of times when I'm selling a bottle, I'll say it's creamy because it sits on its lees for so many months or whatever. And I think I'm too geeky with that. <laughs> I should just say it's creamy because you, you really have to most of the time search a tech note to see if they're doing the, yeah. the, the lees aging. But 
a tip for our listeners. If you, French wines, they have a term they will put, usually they'll put it somewhere on the label for you, Sir Lee, a, Sir Lee mm-hmm. which means it's on the Lee. So the French kind of help you out with that. And you don't have to search the technique. Sometimes it's usually right on the bottle. And there's also another method, Kim. You want to talk about batonnage? So, I mean, you you sometimes will see this on the back of a label and it's a winemaking term. So it's a process that happens during winemaking. Batonnage means that they've like literally taken a big paddle and kind of stirred up the um, the vat with the wine and with the lees. And it, it kind of gets all mixed together. And then again, the lees will settle to the bottom. But what this does is it gives those lees more interaction with the rest of the liquid. So instead of it just sitting on the bottom and really just having uh, contact with that, those few inches of wine that are right on top of the lees, if you stir it, then they have much more of an opportunity to really give that body and that flavor to the full batch of wine. So if you are looking for one of these wines, maybe to try it out, look for those terms. Look for batonnage on the back label of the wine bottle or this term surly, sur so S-U-R-L-I-E, like Mark just said, on uh, on the front of the bottle. And you'll often find it on, like I said, Muscadet from France. And sometimes you'll see it on some other French white wines as well. And I would say that there are, for the beer drinking beer drinkers out there. Sometimes we get these wonderful Belgian wheat beers or German wheat beers that have a little bit of sediment on the bottom of the bottle that is a nice creamy addition to your beer. You know, you pour most of the beer off and then you kind of shake it up and you pour the rest of it in there. It's the exact same thing. So if you like that style of beer, I would say uh, search out one of these wines and it's going to give you a very similar uh, mouthfeel texture. That was a good point, Kim, but the listeners just be aware that it's filtered out of the wine. Once this process is done, it's mostly- Oh, for the wine, sure. Not for the beers. The beers are so good. (laughs) The leaves are going to be in there. But for that's a great point, Mark, that regardless of these wines, if they're aged on Surly, you're not going to get the leaves in the bottle of wine. So you're still going to have a nice, clear, bright glass of white wine. That was a really good thing to mention. (laughs) I didn't even think of that. Well, unless it says it's unfiltered, there's chances you can get some sure. little sediments, but not like not like in the beer, not that right. type of food. So do you believe, Kim, that the it also besides creaminess and the nuttiness and the yeasty, it gives it a little bit more body te- yeah. texture or body depth, texture? Right. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the wonderful things about champagne is that because most vintage champagnes spend a lot of time on the lees, this is why when we talk about champagne. Um, true champagne. We're not talking about, you know, cava or prosecco. We tend to use words that are very related to bread making. You know, we talk about yeasty, we talk about brioche, we talk about nutty and these flavors that we also associate with baking. And it's because of this characteristic. It's because of the process that the wine undergoes when it's being made. So therefore, they have these flavors and it, it's just a, a very convenient way to describe them because there's so much similarity between what you get with these lazy flavors and with baked goods because we're using yeast in all of them. And that's one of the things that gives the flavors to, uh, to that wonderful loaf of challah that you might just be pulling out of the oven. This is one of the things, Kim, I always look to to f- try to find some value in a wine where it's more complex. I feel it's it's mm-hmm. another step in the winemaking that it adds a cost to it. It's time, right? 
Yeah. And, yeah. That and, extra time at the winery does right. does add a little extra cost. Sure. So you can find, say, French Chardonnays in the $10 range that they were aged like six months on the lees. I found wines where, say, it's like Chardonnay, but they age it on Viognier leaves. Like, mm-hmm. so they, they do different things. And to me, doing that winemaking process, and if it's still a low cost wine, to me, I see that as quality and and value in the wine yeah. world. So I, I look for those things. And, That's and it a isn't- super point. That is a, a great way to point out to people how they can search out value in a bottle of wine that maybe if you're comparing this $10 bottle and this $10 bottle, how can you tell between the two of those that this one might be a higher quality? That's a really, really great point for our listeners, Mark. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been Mark and Kim. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Every week, we're right here on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. And you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Bye, bye, bye.